Good morning. I want you to turn over in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 5 this morning. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And as you're turning there, you know, one of the responsibilities of a pastor is to bring the Word of God to bear upon the church, upon the world, and to give God a voice uh, to clarify and even sometimes to discern issues that we face. So on one hand, we're called to the exposition of Scripture, and we do that here faithfully every week. Uh, Usually we're in a book of the Bible. Right now we're in the Gospel of Matthew, and we're going through it chapter by chapter, verse by verse. But on the other hand, there are occasions when we're called to address issues in our time in which we live that affect us and to bring the truth of the Word of God uh, to bear, to give us a better understanding of those issues. And I don't know about you, but leading up to this election, uh, my email box has been just pumped full of email promoting this proposition, that proposition, this candidate, that candidate. And, uh, you know, you turn on every news channel and all you hear is, is uh, political stuff going on. And at times it can become overwhelming. And even to the point where some Christians are so concerned, they think, you know, boy, if their candidate doesn't win on Tuesday, what's going to happen? Well, I'm here to tell you that there'll still be hope. After Tuesday, if your candidate doesn't win. Well, this last week, I had the opportunity to listen to a message that really spoke to my heart on this. And uh, I thought this morning, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and uh, preach this message to you because I think it will be an encouragement to you. And it really helps us to put things in perspective biblically concerning Tuesday, this election. But to kind of set a foundation, I should say, for our message this morning, I just want us to read I'm going to read for you 2 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning in verse 17 to 20. I want you to follow along in your Bibles. We're not going to teach through this uh, in an expositional way, but we're going to use it kind of as a, a, ground, uh, a groundwork for uh, the message this morning. So 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Uh, and just a comment here. Uh, it says very clearly there that old things pass away and new things come when a person is a new creature in Christ. That's what makes the difference in in people's lives, that transformation that takes place. Verse 18, now all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Verse 20, Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf to be reconciled to God. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. We pray that you would bless it to our hearts. Help us to understand uh, the issues that are before us today in our society as we look at that in light of your word. And Father, we just ask your blessing upon us in Jesus' name. Amen. We see very clearly here in this text, it's probably one of the best Christian proof texts to show what the Christian mandate should be. And uh, without any argument at all, Paul just kind of lays it out there. God has sought here to reconcile sinners to himself through Jesus Christ, his son, and in that reconciliation to produce a new, a new creature in which everything is new. And that uh, reality of that reconciliation to God has been given to us as the church. It's called the ministry of reconciliation or the word or message of reconciliation. So you can conclude that we are then ambassadors for Christ and for no other. And that really God is begging through us sinners to be reconciled to God through Christ the very one that he made sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's what the word says to our hearts this morning. And without any lack of clarity, without any argument, therein lies the mandate for the Christian in today's world. It's the ministry of reconciliation to God through Christ, which brings about righteousness, which brings about transformation, which brings about a new creation. However, today, I'm here to tell you this morning, and it's been around for some time, Christianity, through its evangelical element, really has an emphasis on another kind of mandate, a different kind of emphasis, you might say, a different kind of effort. 
And that effort is to produce morality, more specifically cultural morality. And we've seen this addressed throughout the years, but there's, it's, it's no stronger than it is, is today in, in that there's, there's this call going out to Christians to get involved, to calling our nation to a higher level of morality. And we engage with it with all our energy, with all our resources, with all our time, with all our money. We engage in it politically, through the media, through pressure groups. And all that's done to try to change the moral character of our country. And for, for many Christians, we have to understand that that's not what we're called to. Our mandate is not about some kind of cultural morality. The mandate is about salvation. And the last time I checked, the government plays no role in salvation. We should be involved in the ministry of reconciliation. It's the word of reconciliation that we preach. It's not morality that we preach. It's reconciliation with God through Christ, through his message of the gospel. And we should all express a concern, obviously, about the the debauched morality that we see around us in our culture. It doesn't please God. It doesn't please believers. It shouldn't please you. And I'm sure it doesn't please me. We should desire virtue. We should desire character. We should desire integrity, honesty, and morality. All those things do express God's will and a reflection of God's law. And at every opportunity, we should go to the ballot box and do our civic duty and support, as Christians, biblical morality. What Christian could do less? It's our responsibility to address sin, to confront sin, to call it what it is, to expose it, to attack it. That's what we're called to do as believers. But that's not the issue here this morning. It's not about whether we're against immorality. Of course we're against immorality. It's all about what do you view as the solution to the problem? We would all desire a lasting virtue to characterize people. Of course we would desire righteousness over unrighteousness. But that's not the issue. The issue is, the issue is this simply, how do we get there? For many in the Christian profession today, they really honestly believe that it's through politics, it's through media, it's through lobbying and public intimidation, through all these means. And so we have Christians pouring millions of dollars into elections, media events, political pressure groups in an effort to superficially sanitize America. But the question has to be asked, is that the solution? Is that going to work? Is that our mandate as believers? There are people that think that if America somehow becomes moral, God will bless America. And there are people who think that if God, if America becomes moral and religious, even if it's just superficially, well, then God will doubly bless America. So the effort by that element of the, the, the Christian faith is, well, we have to put God back in the public discourse. We have to put public prayer back in our schools. We have to hang the Ten Commandments everywhere on public places in courtrooms. Let's stop abortions. Let's stop rampant homosexuality. Let's stop pornography. And if we can just bring about some kind of morality, and better yet, some kind of commitment to God, then our nation will be blessed. Well, let's set this straight right from the very beginning here. Morality and religion will not invite or secure the blessing of God. Morality and religion will not invite nor secure the blessing of God. They never have and they never will. A more moral America, a more moral and religious America does not advance in divine favor one inch. A more moral and a more religious America will not escape divine judgment any more than the Pharisaical Judaism in Jesus' time escaped the devastating judgment of God in 70 A.D when hundreds of thousands of Jews were slaughtered by godless Romans. And Jesus warned about that event on several occasions. Let's make it real simple. There's only one thing that God will bless, beloved. Only one thing. He blesses saving faith and love for his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. That thing and that thing only does he bless. Anybody who does not believe in and love the Lord Jesus Christ is among the cursed. That's what the Bible says. Now, as Christians, of course, we're for morality. And we can do some kind of superficial good, maybe through the political means. Because we live in a republic and a democracy, we can make some efforts at that by doing our civic duty and going to the ballot box, and I'm all for that. Go and vote your conscience before God. But that does not advance us in divine favor, either individually or collectively. As a matter of fact, in 1 Corinthians 16.22, Paul wrote this, If any man doesn't love the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be anathema. What does that mean, you ask? Let him be cursed. Let him be judged, damned, condemned. 
There's only one thing God will bless, and that's faith in and love for His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, that kind of sets the foundation. That kind of sets the picture for you of where we're going this morning. Now, I don't want you to get the wrong picture. I'm not against those people who hate evil and wickedness. I hate evil and wickedness too. It's not about that. It's about the solution. You remember, Paul wrote Timothy, a young pastor in 1 Timothy 4.8, and he, he wrote this to him. He says, For bodily discipline is only of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things, since it holds the promise of eternal life. Not just this life, but the life to come. Now, some of us who don't like to exercise like that verse. We like the first part of that verse. For bodily discipline is only of little profit. But we have to stop and we have to ask ourselves, am I going to spend all of my time working with people to get them to some kind of bodily discipline that will kind of restrain themselves from doing what their fallen nature finds very naturally to do? Am I going to be concerned about the superficial behavior of people? Or am I going to give myself to that godliness which is profitable, the Bible says, for all things? See, that's the true godliness of the soul, which is connected to what? It's connected to eternal life. It's a question of what is our mandate? Where should our energy go? But it's more than that. Because if you're like me, you get swept and you get caught up in all this political stuff. And you're watching the news and you're reading emails and you're shooting emails and you're just sucked in by all that. And when you get swept away by all this, it becomes the kind of this consuming enterprise of your life in the name of quote-unquote Christianity. When, if we were to honestly look at it, we're seriously off target. Many professing Christians today are consumed with the public morality issue. We've all heard it called the religious right. Well, what the religious right did, and I'm not questioning their motive, I'm sure they mean well. But what they did is they replaced the saving gospel with a social gospel. And so we have this social gospel that can't save anyone. And that's what's replaced the saving gospel. Morality damns just like immorality. Do you understand that? Morality does not bring about divine blessing. Jesus went head to head, as we've seen in, in the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 7, uh, 5, 6, and 7 with the Pharisees, the most religiously superficial, morally people in his world, the scribes and the Pharisees. And Jesus preached his most scathing, most searing, most severe sermon on the religious right of his day. And in Matthew 23, Jesus' address, he addresses the religious leaders of the time, the moral people. And he says in verse 13 of Matthew 23, he says, Woe, which means damn or judgment, curse you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Verse 14, he repeats it. Verse 15, he repeats it. Verse 16, he says, Woe to you, blind guides. Verse 17, he calls them, you fools and blind men. Verse 19, he calls them, you blind men. In verse 23, again, he says, woe to you again, scribes and Pharisees. Verse 24, he says, you blind guides. Verse 25, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Verse 26, he calls them blind Pharisees. In verse 27, he says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. And he just keeps on going on and on like that. And at the end of the chapter, he says in verse 37 of Matthew 23, he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you kill the prophets. You stone those that are sent to you. And then he says in verse 38, your house is being left to you desolate. See, Jesus was looking forward to the judgment of 70 AD when the Roman Empire, Empire would destroy Jerusalem. And as I read those words, I thought, this is interesting because I don't remember Jesus ever, ever using those kind of titles, using those kinds of words to describe the people that he reached out to, who were very, the outcasts, who were the prostitutes, who were the criminals. In fact, Jesus spent most of his time with those people, the outcasts of his day, the tax collectors. And they said that Jesus was a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. That was the label they put on Jesus. And the people that put that on Jesus was the religious right of Jesus' day. See, moralism was never the Old Testament message of the prophets. It was never the message of the Messiah. It's never been the message of the New Testament apostles or prophets. 
It's never been God's message to a world because when it's all said and done, beloved, Isaiah says this, all your righteousness is as what? That's right, filthy rags. Romans chapter 3, a very important chapter in the Bible because it describes the condition of human wickedness. And in chapter 3, verse 10, it says, there is none righteous, not even one. There's none that understands. There's none who seeks after God. So whatever imaginary righteousness men have, whatever superficial morality that they may be able to turn on, in the end, they're not righteous before God. It gains absolutely nothing. Verse 12 says in Romans 3, there's no one good enough, not even one. Verse 19 says, everybody under the law, everybody who lives according to the law, to some degree or another, will find that their mouths are closed. They will have no defense, and the whole world is accountable and guilty before God, because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. So you can become moral. You can change. You can turn over a new leaf. And go ahead and do that. Live a better life. Clean your life up. Clean your act up, as they say. But that has no bearing whatsoever on your relationship to God. The biblical message is not that humanity is divided between the moral and the immoral. That's not the biblical message. Or that somehow (coughs) humanity is divided between the virtuous and the wicked. That's not the biblical message. The message of the Bible is clearly, as we see in Romans, all have sinned and all have come short of the glory of God. That there is no division. They're all immoral. They're all bad. They're all wicked. It's only a question of degree or kind or how it manifests itself in somebody's life. Whenever somebody's external degree of morality might, whatever it might be, all are condemned sinners headed to hell. You might be the most moral Pharisee in Israel. You might be the most moral rabbi. You might be the most moral cleric. You can take it from there. The most moral, self-righteous, clean-living Mormon. And you know what? You're going to hell with the prostitutes and drug addicts and, and such. See, unless you've been reconciled to God through His Son, Jesus Christ... And then if you've been reconciled to God through His Son, Jesus Christ, you have become a new creature, new creation. Old behaviors are replaced with new ones, the Bible says. So if we want to change, we hear about that a lot, especially in this campaign, change, change, change. What does it mean? Well, beloved, morality saves no one. Morality does not command the blessing of God. As a matter of fact, in Romans chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, it says this, for there is no partiality with God. On the surface, you look at that and you say, well, that sounds pretty good. Sounds kind of fair. God's not going to take sides. But listen what he says. But all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. Do you understand what he's saying here? It says, whatever might be your relationship to the law of God, it doesn't matter to God. And the reason it doesn't matter is because you can't keep the law to his satisfaction anyway. That's what we're told in Galatians 3. If you break the law in one point, you've broken the whole law. Romans 10, Paul said that the Jews, not understanding the righteousness of God, go about to establish their own righteousness. And we've seen that throughout Matthew. The law of God tells them to do one thing. They go off and say, well, we'll change it and we'll do this. And so Jesus had to come back and say, hey, you've heard it written. Well, let me tell you how it really is. So you might get the idea that trying to moralize the country is some sort of noble effort. And, you know, when you honestly look at it, a more moral society would make life easier in a lot of ways. But how do you get there? How do you bring that about? That's the question I want to ask this morning. And to be real honest with you, it's not going to be through politics. The last time I I checked the Word of God, Jesus did not call us a kingdom of politicians. 
What did he call us? He called us a kingdom of what? Of priests. Do you know what a priest is? A priest is a reconciler. A priest is someone who brings people to God through Christ. Now, there's some, there's some dangers here about this cultural morality. And I'm going to give you a list of several of them this morning. So like I said, this is kind of a different kind of a message for us here. But I think it's a very relevant one and it's a needed one. So let me, let me give you some of these dangers that I see as far as pursuing this cultural <coughs> morality question. First of all, cultural morality is not our commission. We've seen that. It's not our mandate. Second Corinthians 5, it tells us. The Great Commission says that we should go into all the world and what? Make them moral? No, it says preach the gospel. It's not our commission. So right at the outset, we're doing something that we have not been mandated by God to do. And then we expect his blessing upon it. It's almost like the enemy threw it out there as a diversionary activity. If I can get them to think somehow if they can just make everybody moral, then they'll be over there trying to make everybody moral, trying to pass laws that they think will bring about God's favor. The enemy knows that's not going to work. As long as they're not out there preaching the gospel, what God actually told them to do, I'm okay with it. I'll get them off track. It's very easy. So it's not our commission. It's not our mandate. Secondly, it wastes an immense amount of, of precious resources, time, money, money, human energy. Do you know it doesn't matter whether you go to hell as a prostitute or a policeman? It only matters that you're going to hell. All this effort to clean up America. Stop and think. The Bible says, can a leper change his spots? Can an Ethiopian change his skin? Are you able to bring something other than who you truly are? It's just a waste of resources. And in Galatians chapter, or Ephesians chapter 5, verse 16, Paul writes... Make the most of your time because the days are evil and understand what the will of the Lord is and don't be foolish. Well, what's the will of the Lord, you say? He's told us over and over it's to preach the gospel, the message of reconciliation. That's the will of the Lord. And to do something other than that is just foolish. It's wasted time because God will not bless it. You know, I'm not interested in making this country moral. That doesn't interest me at all. Because I know that that's not going to invite the blessing of God. But I am interested in bringing people who are lost to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. So that he can recreate them. So that they will become moral. Thirdly, cultural morality sets up inevitable failure. And the reason it does that is because it's impossible to do. You can't do it. No one can truly be righteous and moral before God apart from the transformation of his soul by the Holy Spirit through the gospel message. The Bible says the heart of man is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. See, if, if we don't change someone's heart, if God doesn't change someone's heart and recreate it, all you're doing is redirecting their sin. We think because they passed some proposition that, oh, well, then that's going to make this sin go away. No, it's not. And I'm all for, once again, going to the ballot box and, and, and voting biblically. But let's not take this too far. Cultural morality is programmed to failure. If some sins become illegal, then people will do other sins. And they'll do what they want, if, even if it's in secret, they'll do it. Because the, the heart is desperately wicked. Also, cultural morality fails to understand the nature of the kingdom of God. Jesus said in John 18, 36, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight. What was Jesus saying? He was saying, my kingdom has absolutely nothing to do with the politics here on earth. He's basically saying, I'm not going to waste my time. This isn't what it's about. So to spend all of our time and energy and effort fighting for some element of human society, it misses the whole point. It fails to understand the true nature of the kingdom of God. The kingdom is the realm of salvation where God rules over and he blesses those who are in Christ. 
If you're serious about bringing blessing to this nation, then go out and preach the gospel. Because I guarantee you there's no connection between the national entity of the United States of America and the kingdom of God. Jesus said it as clearly as he could, my kingdom is not of this world. They're two completely different realities. Why is it that somehow we've gotten the idea that we have to posture America politically for the advancement of the kingdom of God? They have absolutely no connection. We've even heard people say, if America keeps going this way, if it keeps, and sin gets more and more accepted in our society, it gets more and more corrupt, boy, you know, it's going to cripple the impact of the gospel. It's going to cause evangelism to be hard to do, if not illegal. We have to fight for all these freedoms in order for us to be able to preach the gospel. Let me tell you this morning, there is nothing that can be done, has been done, will be done on the face of the earth by men politically or socially that has any impact whatsoever on the purposes of God in redemption. None. That should be an encouragement to us. Fifthly, this cultural morality puts the responsibility on man rather than God. It has well-intentioned people trying to do the impossible. I mean, I don't mind taking on a hard task if I know I can succeed and, and, and be rewarded as such. But there's nothing worse than trying to do something you know you're going to fail. We can't make this country moral. It's a battle we can't win. Those who are accustomed to doing evil, Jeremiah 13, 23 says, can't do good. So it's impossible to do. So why even try? Number six, the effort at cultural morality creates morality without theology. It creates morality without theology. I don't know about you, but I don't like anything without theology. I want theology on everything, on every plate. I don't like anything without theology because... You know, I can't understand anything apart from God's voice on it, his revelation of it. Our understanding of the world should be completely subject to what Scripture says. But see, this cultural morality that's in Christendom today, growing religious right effort, there's been a severe ignorance of theology. It's an ignorance of his word. It's an ignorance of his law. There's no theology involved. That's not how this stuff gets done. Morality without theology doesn't have the right motivation. You hear people say, well, we've got to you know, protect our cultural morality because of our children. Well, that's a reasonable thing, but that's not our highest motive for what we do. Our goal is to proclaim the truth, not just protect our children. Now, protecting our children is obviously a responsibility we have before God, and we'll do that. But we can't be trying to create a national environment that's somehow going to incubate our kids. Sounds good, but that's not going to happen. Our motive is to is the glory of God and the honor of God. That's what our motivation should be. And we need to stop this, you know, just just uh, putting theology aside. I know why they do it, but as soon as you do, the whole the whole train goes off the tracks. Number seven: If it, cultural morality fails to understand. That salt and light, as indicated in Matthew 5, what Jesus meant by that. He says, we're the salt of the earth, we're the light of the world. That salt and that light are not moral influence, but the gospel witness. You know, you hear people all the time, well, we have to be the salt and the light, we have to be the salt and the light. Well, what do they mean by that? Does that mean somehow we're supposed to make people moral? That's not going to work. The imagery of, the, of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, as we went over it, is the image of shining forth of truth. That's the light, the preservation of godly living. And we're the salt when, 
when we are a preservative because of the virtue and godliness in our lives. Cultural morality also is dangerous because it has no New Testament model. There's no New Testament model at all in the New Testament uh, about cultural morality except that of the Pharisees. Jesus said this about them in Matthew 23, 15. When you're through making somebody a convert to your morality, you have made him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. <laughs> Pretty strong statement. It ends up in being a very legalistic society. Jesus said to them one day as they picked up the stones, you remember, to stone an adulterous woman, Whoever's without sin, throw the first stone. Well, it wasn't too long before the stones started dropping and people started walking away. These these were people who thought they were righteous. Number nine, cultural morality creates unholy unions in which the unbelieving and enemies of the gospel are welcomed. There's a lot of non-Christians involved in this religious right effort because they believe we have to have a moral country. I mean, you can get the Muslims involved in this. They're moral to a certain degree. You can get Catholics involved in this. You can get some Orthodox Jews involved in this. So what are you doing? All of a sudden, as believers, you're linking arms with non-believers. And the last time I checked, 2 Corinthians chapter 6 says we shouldn't be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. What does fellowship of light have to do with darkness? What agreement has Christ with Satan? Come out from among them and be ye separate. But what happens when you're trying to achieve a kind of a moral, uh, a cultural morality? You're trying to get a base. And to get a strong base, you have to kind of throw the net real wide. So pretty soon you're hooking up with anybody that will say, yeah, I'm against abortion, I'm against homosexuality, I'm against this. Oh, I don't care what you believe. That's irrelevant because we want to leave theology out of the the mix. We just want to know if you're anti-abortion, anti-homosexual, anti-euthanasia, against pornography. And then we're all going to get together and put our efforts together and try to create a more uh, moral America. And you put all this effort and all this time to bring all these people together. Why do you think you leave theology out of that mix? What are you going to do? Get all these people together and say, oh, by the way, we believe that Jesus is the only way for salvation. And if you're not, if you don't love the Lord Jesus Christ, you're condemned to hell. Well, that's going to blow up your whole organization. In that environment, the the gospel becomes destructive. And that leads to another problem here is cultural morality leads to acceptance of inclusivism. It starts to stretch the boundaries of the kingdom of God to embrace all these people who are outside of Christ. And we hear it all the time. Well, I'm sure, you know, Mormons are well-meaning people. I'm sure Roman Catholics are well-meaning people. I'm sure a well-meaning Muslim. I'm sure they'll go to heaven. If they're not in Christ, they're not going to heaven. But this cultural morality kind of stretches the borders of the kingdom of heaven. He said in Galatians 1, Paul said this, if you meet anybody who gives you another gospel than the one that I gave you, let him be accursed. You can't preach the gospel in that kind of environment. Your whole organization would blow up. (laughs) People would be offended. People would leave. Then who would listen to you? Also, cultural morality becomes selective as to the sins it attacks. You ever notice that? The religious right is real quick to point out, you know, homosexuality and abortion and, 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 you know, immorality. When's the last time you heard him talk about pride, which is also a sin God hates? I haven't heard them rant and rave much about materialism. I haven't seen a great effort against divorce. Or adultery. I mean, they're really against homosexuality because that's so bizarre and abnormal. They're really against pedophilia. That's sick and abnormal. They're against killing babies. That's, that's you know, safe. I mean, who can imagine doing that? 
They're against filth and pornography. But it seems like there's, they're selective in their morality. There's certain things they don't talk about. And you remember at one point in America, one of the greatest advocates for the religious right, a national spokesman, a well-known politician, while he was developing his contract on America, was found out to be involved with another woman who wasn't his wife. Wow. It's a selective thing. Let me just put it to you real straight. You know, this whole cultural morality thing, it doesn't deal with the worst possible sin there is. It doesn't deal with it. It doesn't even mention it. And you say, well, how do you know what the worst possible sin is? You know what the worst possible sin in the world is? Sure you do. Stop and think of it this way. What's the greatest commandment? What did Jesus say the greatest commandment? That's right. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. So let me ask you again. Well, then what's the greatest sin? To break the greatest commandment. How are we doing this morning? We doing okay? You've committed the greatest sin. I've committed the greatest sin. We still want to talk about morality? Well, let's talk about that. You want to talk about sin? Let's not pick out five that we don't uh, partake of that are kind of easily uh, to assault because it makes us looking pretty good. Let's talk about the fact that you've broken the greatest commandment. Therefore, you've committed the greatest sin that any human being could ever commit. And that that sin ultimately sends you to eternal hell. You doing okay? You have failed to love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength. R.C. Sproul, theologian, said this one time. He said, and you know what? You haven't kept that commandment as at any time in your life for five seconds. <laughs> Can't keep that commandment. It's impossible. you want to go after America's immorality, then let's indict the whole nation for not loving God. That is not only the first and the greatest commandment. That is the sum of all the commandments. And we can't even do the second one. The second commandment is love your neighbor as yourself. We can't even keep that for five seconds. And so if we're going to get moral, let's go where we need to go. Let's not just be selective. If we're going to call America to morality, then let's indict them where they need to be indicted. And let's indict our own hearts where we need to be indicted. And say we've broken the first and greatest commandment. We've broken the second commandment. And we do it all the time. Therefore, we're condemned to hell. And we're in desperate need of God's grace and forgiveness and salvation through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Number 12, the... Cultural morality fails to understand the true nature of spiritual warfare. It fails to understand the true nature of spiritual warfare. They talk about all this, you know, these propositions, all this is all spiritual warfare. No, it's not. Spiritual warfare is not engaged in human efforts, beloved, politically to change laws. Well, what is spiritual warfare? 2 Corinthians chapter 10 tells us. It tells us that spiritual warfare is smashing down all human ideologies with the truth of God. That's spiritual warfare. Bringing captives out and bringing them into obedience to Christ, submission to the truth of God through the word of God. The real spiritual war is simply this. You have a whole world of people who think wrong. (laughs) Their thinking is damning them. They think wrong about themselves. They think wrong about God. They think wrong about Christ if they think about Him at all. They need to think differently. They need to know the truth. They need to know the gospel. They need to know the truth about themselves, the truth about God, the truth about Christ, the truth about His work, the truth about salvation, the truth about grace and forgiveness. They need to know the truth. And it's when you bring that truth to the person And you engage in the war with their mind so that you can bring the truth to bear upon their wrong thinking. That's real spiritual warfare. It's an ideological battle. But the real war is bringing the truth of Christ to those in error. 
So what's the church doing? <laughs> what should we be doing? We should be preaching the glorious, extensive, completed whole message of redemption through the Lord Jesus Christ and take that great message to these people who are kind of just fortified in these ideological fortresses in which literally they're going to die unless someone smashes the walls down of those lying fortifications with the truth. That's real spiritual warfare. It's not a political one. It's for the minds and eternal souls of people, and it's about the truth, delivering them from error to truth. And only God can do that through His Word, through His Spirit. Cultural morality also is dangerous because it makes those we are commanded to lovingly reach with the gospel of Jesus Christ into the enemy rather than a mission field. The unbelievers, the immoral, the homosexualities, the abortionists, the pornographers, all those people, cultural morality turns them into the enemy. Beloved, they are not the enemy. They were created in God's image just like you and I. They're victims of the enemy. And they need to be freed from the enemy's bondage through the power of the Lord Jesus Christ in His glorious gospel. You remember the story of Jonah in the Old Testament. You think of the Ninevites. These people were a wretched people. They were pagans. They slaughtered their enemies and they piled their skulls in pyramids. They would take dead bodies of of the, the wars that they won and the people they slaughtered and they'd back up a whole river by piling up these dead bodies. They would cover pillars in buildings with the filleted skin of the conquered ruler. Disgusting. They were wicked. They hated God. They were enemies of Israel and God. And here comes Jonah and God taps him on the shoulder and says, Hey, uh, preacher, prophet, I want you to go and you, you preach to those people in Nineveh. What did Jonah say? Ah, no chance, no way, I don't think so. And he heads 2,000 miles in the opposite direction. To him, that was a repulsive thought. Preach forgiveness to the Ninevites? Well, we know the story after being swallowed and then vomited. <laughs> One commentator wrote, frankly, any fish would have vomited up a bitter prophet like Jonah. Well, after that experience, he realized God meant business and he went to Nineveh and he preached. Some say 600,000 people. And the Bible tells us the whole place repented. The whole place fell on their faces before God. And you'd think that as a prophet, as someone who's God's representative with God's message... He would be happy about this. He would be glorifying the Lord. He wasn't. He was, he was really mad. He was ticked off. He was miserable. Matter of fact, he was so mad that he wanted to die. See, that's how moralism can, be some, can become such a severe danger. He was a legalist, Jonah was. Kind of a racist in a way. He didn't want these wretched Gentiles to hear about forgiveness. He didn't want them kind of crowding in on his forgiveness with God. One thing we want to make sure, we always want to make sure that sinners in our world know that we love them enough to offer them forgiveness. I don't want them to ever think that I hate them. Now, there is a holy hatred of sin and the sinner. But even Jesus wept over them. And so must we. That's why one thing when these political campaigns come around and people, oh, well, you put this in your front yard. Or hey, I don't put anything in my front yard. And it's not because of shame, I'm ashamed of what I stand up for or what I believe. My concern is maybe the people across the street, maybe the, the next door neighbors. What if they take a different political view? Well, you know what? I just slammed a door right in their face as far as kind of creating any kind of a relationship and sharing Christ with them. If I'm for Proposition 8 and the guy catacorner for me is against Proposition 8, you don't think that puts up a little barrier there over a crazy proposition? I'm going to miss a chance to share the gospel with somebody who desperately needs to hear it? 
And so today we have more and more Christians. Another danger of this is that it brings persecution and the hatred of Christians for the wrong reasons. You hear people all the time, you know. Well, I, you know, I was uh, put a thing in my front yard. We heard that this this campaign. A lot of people sporting certain things or propositions, you know, and they would deface the house and, you know, and sometimes the people inside the house would be Christians. Well, we're being persecuted for our faith. No, you're not. You're being persecuted because you took a political stance. That's all you're being persecuted for. Christians are being vilified today in the media. They're getting persecuted for all the wrong reasons. They're definitely not getting persecuted because they're preaching the gospel of Christ. The story of a a pastor in Russia when before the walls came down and communism fell. And he was in America at a, a conference and they were asking him certain things. And he, oh, you know, we get persecuted all the time. You're thrown into jail for uh, preaching the gospel. Thrown into jail for coming to church. And the person that was interviewing them asked them, well, you know, don't you, don't you kind of protest that? Don't you want to fight against that? That your government does that to you? And he kind of laughed and he said, you know, we made a, uh, a commitment a long time ago as a church in a communist nation that we've de- determined as a church that if we are ever going to suffer, it will be always and only because we have proclaimed the gospel of Jesus Christ, not for political purposes. And that's right. First Peter 4.14 says, if you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed. It doesn't say if you're reviled because you support a certain proposition or you support a certain candidate. People who call themselves Christians today are getting vilified by the world for their political positions. And for their animosity and their hostility toward the people who are the ones we're supposed to reach. Also, cultural morality reverses the divine order. It makes morality the power for salvation. If somehow we could get a more moral America, then more people are going to believe the gospel. That's totally reversed from what God says. Somehow, if we can clean up the country, it would give us great opportunity to share the gospel. That's really the reverse of the divine order. Morality is not the power for salvation. Salvation is the power for morality. So if we want to change the nation, what do we need to be working on? We need to be sharing the gospel. This effort at cultural morality also fails to understand the wrath of God. It fails to understand the wrath of God. In Romans 1... God tells us very clearly when he's angry with a nation that has turned against him. When they knew God, they glorified him not as God. You know that that text. When God is angry at a nation that has had the truth and kind of just put it off, put it aside, God says three times he gave them up, he gave them up, he gave them up. That's a form of God's judgment. And the first thing is he gave them up to sexual immorality. We see that all around us. That happened back in the the age of love and all that. Secondly, he gave them up to homosexuality. We see that all around us. And thirdly, it says he gave them up to a twisted, reprobate, useless mind. You don't have to look too far to see a reprobate mind today in society. And so we look at our nation. We see sexual immorality rampant. We see homosexuality rampant. We see reprobate, reprobate minds everywhere. What's this evidence of? The blessing of God? I don't think so. It's evidence of the wrath of God. And do you think for one minute that somehow by your political agenda, by your political effort, you can overturn the wrath of God? I don't know what God is doing in the world, but I do know this, beloved. I know what my mandate is. My mandate has to do with the gospel and the gospel alone. Moralism confuses and it misses the priority for Christians in the world. It misrepresents the divine message that man, moral or immoral, is damned and must be saved and can be saved only by believing the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
Don't forget, beloved, it was the highly moral, highly religious Jews who were very particular about all their righteous standards. It was those people who joined with the immoral, idolatrous Romans who openly flaunted their sins. They joined arms together, the moral and the immoral, and together they killed Christ. It's very moral people who are trying to kill us flying planes into buildings. Don't, don't overestimate morality. So to what are we called? Well, Paul says in Romans 1, very clearly, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God onto salvation. How do we change America? By preaching the gospel. So our calling is to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ to the ends of the earth. Transforming power of the gospel will make new creatures And for those new creatures, as we've already experienced, all things have become new. That's how God designed this to work. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you this morning for your word that speaks to these issues that we all face. And Lord, no matter who is going to be elected on Tuesday, no matter what propositions fail or pass on Tuesday, that really has little to do with, absolutely nothing to do with your kingdom the kingdom of salvation, the kingdom of God. We pray, Lord, that you would raise up a great force of people among us who would preach tirelessly the gospel of Christ, the gospel of salvation, not a gospel of cultural morality. Then and only then can we be a people, a nation, a changed people, a changed nation. Keep us clear to our calling that we're to be ambassadors with the ministry of reconciliation who possess the word of reconciliation in order that hearing people might believe and believing they will become new creatures in whom all things are new. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. That is my message.